This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Are you ready? Let's go. From AMI Central. Now circling in the neutral zone. Here's the pitch on the way. 36 yards for the win. This. Here comes a big chance. The shot is. Is this the tagger? The neutral zone. This is as good as it gets. Now, here's your host, two-time Paralympian, Brock Richardson. Wow, thank goodness it's Friday, folks. You're listening to another edition of The Neutral Zone. I am your host, Brock Richardson, of course, joined by Cam Jenkins this week. Cam, how are you? I'm not doing too bad. Uh, Just kind of looking forward or um, have uh, enjoyed the uh, draft that took place. Um, I'm looking forward to the entry draft tonight and then uh, free agency next week. So who knows? Maybe we'll get some uh, Trade Center uh, going on uh, the show. Yeah, you never you never do know. They call it silly season in the National Hockey League for a reason because everything just kind of seems to happen at once. And then we go through this period where it's like, okay, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then we go through another period before the season where there's more signings. So it's called Silly Season for a reason, folks. Enjoy it. Also joining us is Claire Buchanan. Claire, how are you? I'm doing okay. I'm dealing with a bit of a pinched nerve right now. So um, yeah, just been hanging out at home and took in the opening ceremonies at the Olympics today. Yes, I uh, saw a few highlights of those as well. And I've recorded them, but I have not yet seen them in its entirety. I have to say, it was a bit weird with no fans, but they got it done. Did you enjoy the uh, op- opening ceremony? Ah, uh, yeah, like you said, it it was weird. It's it's going to be weird the whole games. It's it's going to be very quiet. Uh, um, I'm hoping that they have at least some fan noise uh, in the background for certain events but we'll see but yeah the olympic the opening ceremonies sorry today were very very quiet yeah cameron am i the only one that feels like it's weird that two events started before the opening ceremony and for those that don't know i'm speaking of softball and soccer started uh before the opening ceremony does that seem weird to you or am i on my own on an island over here I think you're on uh, your own on an island over there, uh, Brock. <laughs> um, I, I think they always have uh, some um, sports that uh, play before the actual um, opening ceremonies. So, but that's just my recollection of it. Yeah, Claire, any thought there? Uh, well, I mean, I've talked to a couple of athletes in the last couple months uh, with projects I've been doing, and uh, a lot of athletes actually don't end up going to the opening ceremonies because they're getting ready for competition. So I was, I was really surprised through conversations that the number of athletes that don't actually get to experience uh, going into the stadium and, and, and being part of the opening ceremonies. So it's, yeah, it's, it's okay that they come, they come in a little bit early and they, they just want to get their tournament started. And uh, I, I think the opening ceremonies is is pretty low on their priority list going into it. Yeah, true story. In both uh, Paralympic Games that I got to represent, we uh, secretly prayed that our event was 
after the first, you know, three days or so, because if your event was within the first three days, likely that you're training or you're doing something on the night of. And so we got to do both uh, athlete parades, but didn't get to stay for, for both uh, opening ceremony because we were on the uh, end of the stick where it was early in the event. So that was a bit of a thing. But the closing ceremony, I've always been told is uh, is something that uh, is better because athletes take a little bit of pressure off themselves and the job has been done, whereas people have other things on their mind. Uh, speaking of other things on our mind, let's get into the headlines for this week. NHL's Nashville Predators prospect Luke Kralkoff took a courageous step Monday coming out as the first NHL contract signed uh, athlete. And this is huge because the the NHL is one of the sports that uh, is kind of last in having that space where athletes are coming out. And um, it's good to see that that wall is finally being broken down for, for athletes to follow in his steps. The Toronto Blue Jays are finally coming home to Toronto a week from today. Roger Ward gives us more. The Jays have federal government approval to return to Canada. The team says in a statement it will begin playing home games at the Rogers Centre starting July the 30th. They have a national interest exemption from the federal government which would allow players to cross the border without being subject to Canada's COVID-19 travel restrictions. Toronto's scheduled to start a three-game series against the visiting Kansas City Royals on July 30th. Roger Ward, the Canadian Press, Toronto. This is uh, long overdue as the Toronto Blue Jays have been on the road for about a a full season when you factor in two half uh, seasons in in two separate seasons. So it's it's been a long time overdue. And in recent weeks, we've seen the Boston Red Sox and the Tampa Bay Rays get more fans than the Toronto Blue Jays in their quote-unquote home stadium of Buffalo. So it'll be nice to see them return in a week's time in Toronto. The scary incident took place outside of Nationals Park during a Major League Baseball game between the Washington Nationals and the San Diego Padres. Elizabeth Schultz fills us in. The search for suspects in the shooting outside Washington, D.C.'s Nationals Park is underway after gunshots sent frantic crowds fleeing and taking cover. Padres put three more on the board. Eight to four. In the middle of the sixth inning Saturday night, rapid gunfire echoing across the stadium, halting the Nationals-Padres game. Into the Nationals' dugout to get away. Some fans running into the dugout to take cover, fearing an active shooter. I can't believe that this is also happening at events that you go a lot of the times with your family or friends. And it's a way to kind of get away from reality and just to relax. And these are now happening at sporting events, which to me is just unbelievable. Um, And three people were treated for gunshot wounds, um, but they were uh, non-life-threatening, thank God. Those are your headlines for this week. Let's uh, check in on our Twitter poll question from last week. The question was, did you watch the Major League Baseball All-Star festivities? 72% of you said no. 28% of you said yes. This week's question is, 
Are you going to be watching the Olympic Games? Your choices are yes or no. It shouldn't be happening. Cast your votes at our Twitter handle, which will be given out a little later on in the show. And of course, at AMI Audio as well. Coming up after the break, we're going to preview uh, the sport of murder ball and tell you everything you need to know ahead of the Tokyo Paralympic Games coming up later this summer. Stay with us. You're listening to The Neutral Zone on AMI-audio. We'll be right back. message for the neutral zone call now 1-866-509-4545 and don't forget to give us permission to use your message on the air let's get ready to leave a voicemail Welcome back to The Neutral Zone on AMI-audio. I'm your host, Brock Richardson, joined by Claire Buchanan and Cam Jenkins. Cam, you have a trade to uh, announce for us, speaking of NHL silly season. So let's cover that off. Yeah, it is the silly season. As I mentioned before earlier in the show, uh, it is the uh, draft tonight. And it looks like the St. Louis Blues have acquired forward Pavel Buchnevich from the New York Rangers. And we're not quite sure of what the uh, return is back for the St. Louis Blues, or sorry, for the Rangers. So, um, yeah, silly season is upon us. So uh, keep those trades coming. There was a there was a trade I saw with uh, the Buffalo Sabres and Philadelphia uh, flyers and the return box for the Philadelphia Flyers said, "quote cap space." So, so then I just kind of giggled when I thought, oh, "Okay, I guess that is your return." Getting rid of a a contract means you can uh, alleviate some cap space, so that could be considered return as well. Uh, we've been. Go ahead. Oh, I just said I saw that too, and to me, it's just unbelievable that you can do a trade and not get anything in return. Like I would think that's illegal, but obviously it's not. So, yeah, I'm really impressed with Philadelphia and what they're doing. So, I always like the line of uh, cash considerations because it's not exactly clear what that means exactly. It's like we'll consider your cash for this trade. Tell us what you're going to offer us. I, you know, it's interesting what happens in. In signing season for sure. Over the uh, last number of weeks, we've been covering off uh, various para sports, and today we're doing uh, wheelchair rugby, also f- known as murder ball. We're going to spend uh, about half the show uh, discussing murder ball. We're going to start with telling you how the game works and then talk about some documentaries that have been done by the sport following this segment. And we're going to bring Josh Watson in to do that segment with us. But first, Claire, you're going to lead us off with the history of wheelchair rugby. Yeah, so wheelchair rugby is one of the unique sports uh, that is mixed gendered. It began in 1977, so not too long ago, uh, in Canada with a group of quad athletes who 
We're looking for a sport that was uh, just as full contact that wheelchair basketball was and kind of had the same flow of game. And uh, so quad players have a reduced arm and hand function. So they are able to participate uh, more of a, on equal terms on the court. Uh, contact between the sports chairs is permitted. Like I said, it's a full contact sport and is in fact an integral, like it's an important part of the sport uh, as players use their chairs to block and hold opponents out similar to wheelchair basketball. Uh, the degree of contact is at the heart of the whole sports uh, appeal to, to the fans and, and the general public. Uh, the result is uh, just like any other rugby game. It's noisy. It's exciting. Uh, the fans get into it really good. Um, and just like other similar sports that use uh, sports chairs, uh, there is the possibility of uh, flipping over and falling over and, um, so yeah, there's a lot of contact, of course. Uh, it was originally called a murder ball. And, um, if you have watched the documentary, they, they say a lot that, uh, you can't really market murder ball to, to the gent, to sponsors and stuff. So, uh, wheelchair rugby is, is the official name of it at the Paralympic games. And, uh, so the players need to have a combination of, of speed and strength and, and stamina, and also, they need to have excellent uh, ball handling skills, uh, despite the uh, lack of function in in their hands. Uh, they they do wear gloves sometimes to to catch the ball, but uh, yeah, just like any other sport, they have to have a variety of of skill sets to be successful. Yes, and the one thing that I will say is when you watch wheelchair rugby it reminds me of a smash up derby because the sound <laughs> when you hit the other wheelchair is like oh is someone's wheel gone because of that like is that is that okay and people just keep trucking along through uh, and playing it is a uh, fascinating uh, game to watch Here's a little more detail on the aim of the game and it's played four on four athletes are able to carry the ball and the object is that they have to carry it over their opponent's goal line. Um, two wheels must cross the goal line to be considered a point. The quarters are played in eight-minute intervals for uh, four quarters, of course. And the other point of the game is that you have to um, pass the ball within every... 10 seconds of your clock. There's a 40 second clock altogether, but every 10 seconds of that 40 second clock, you must dribble or pass the ball to another athlete in order to score a point. Um, this is something that I love to watch. Uh, you are, of course, able to keep it on your lap within that um, 10, 10 seconds, and there is no rule as to how many pushes you're allowed. Much like we see in wheelchair basketball, it is just simply within that 10-second clock, you have to either dribble or pass. So that is the uh, name of the game. Now, Cameron, you're going to go next. Yeah, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the playing surface as well as the equipment. Um, now, wheelchair rugby is played on a 28-meter by 15-meter court, and it's in, divided into two halves uh, with center circle and what's called a tri-line at each end. 
Uh, the match does consist of four eight-minute quarters, with the clock stopped every time there is a stoppage in play. Um, and in the event of a tie, extra periods of three minutes are played until the tie is broken. Um, like Brock was saying before, it is a phenomenal game. Um, I went to it. I was lucky enough to go to it when I believe it was the Pan Am Games were in Toronto. And I can see why it's called Murder Ball, um, because there are bodies just flying all over the floor. And it's such a rough game. I've never seen such a rough game before in my life. So um, it, it's phenomenal to watch. And it's something I'd like to maybe play eventually. Yeah, uh, I also saw wheelchair rugby uh, when the Pan Am Games was here. And uh, yeah, just like some other sports like wheelchair basketball, it's it's a very tough sport to to watch. And so but yeah, just like any other para sport, for the most part there, because of the different uh, functional ability of the athletes, there's a classification system. And so. Depending on the level of ability, uh, the point system goes from half a point to 3.5, which would be the highest uh, level of physical function. Um, a squad compromise comprises of a maximum of 12 players on a team. And on the court, there can only be a total number of eight points all added together. Uh, teams fielding Female players also receive an additional half a point allowance for each female player on the team. Uh, this unique system means that players with minor impairments can compete alongside those with uh, more serious impairments. Uh, there are two types of competitive wheelchairs. Uh, one provides a rough indication of the role played by the athlete. Uh, the chair can either be set up for uh, an athlete that is more of a scorer, uh, more of a forward playing uh, athlete. And then the other side of the, the other version of the chair would be built to navigate more of a defensive game. Um, yeah, the defensive chairs have uh, a much longer bumper uh, on the front of the chair to help stop opposing players movement, for example, by running into or snagging the edges of their chairs or, or a little bit of, the, of their wheels. Um, the eligible impairment types uh, for the game are impaired muscle power, uh, athetosis, uh, impaired massive, passive range of movement, hypertonia, limb deficiency, ataxia, and uh, yeah, a, a wide variety uh, of disabilities and uh um, yeah, there's, it gives a wide variety of athletes that can, that can play the sport and, and be part of, uh, of, of the team. That is the absolute beautiful thing about para sports is that usually there are classifications for most every, um, uh, imp impairment that you may have. Um, and then if your, your, your disability doesn't allow for you to play sports, there seems to just be more and more sports that everyone's able to play. So uh, rugby is no different in that regard either. So let's uh, discuss the uh, results from Rio 2016. We had gold for Australia, silver went to the United States, and bronze went to Japan. Team Canada lost in the bronze medal game 50-52. to 52. So looking to uh, rebound there for this 
upcoming games. And of course, we wish the rugby team all the best uh, moving forward to the games. So that's a little bit about rugby and the sport, as it were. Coming up next, we're going to bring in Josh Watson into the group. We're going to talk about a few documentaries that have been done. One follows New Zealand and the other one follows Canada and the U.S. Stay tuned for our feelings on that and much, much more on the second half of the Neutral Zone right here on AMI-audio. We'll be back. Welcome back to the Neutral Zone AMI broadcast booth. And we are set to get this ball game underway. The first pitch brought to you by Brock Richardson's Twitter account at NeutralZoneBR. First pitch, strike. And hey, gang, why not strike up a Twitter chat with Claire Buchanan for the Neutral Zone? Find her at Neutral Zone CB. And there's a swing and a chopper out to second base right at Claire. She picks up the ball, throws it over to first base for a routine out. And fans, there is nothing routine about connecting with Cam and Josh from the Neutral Zone. At Neutral Zone, Cam J and at J Watson 200. Now that's a winning combination. And this Oregon interlude is brought to you by AMI-audio on Twitter. Get in touch with the Neutral Zone. Type in at AMI-audio. Welcome back to the Neutral Zone right here on AMI-audio. I'm your host, Brock Richardson, joined by Cam Jenkins and Claire Buchanan. We're also joined by the other member of our group, and that is Josh Watson, who's going to join us to discuss some documentaries that have been released around wheelchair rugby. Josh, how are you? I'm doing well, guys. Good to be with you. Yes, good to have you, as always. Uh, before we lead off this conversation on the documentaries, I want to just say a couple of things here. One, there's been a couple of durations of these documentaries. One of them follows Canada, US, and the other one follows the New Zealand team. So we're going to cover a little bit of both. They kind of follow the same premise. Uh, the one that's free is the one that follows uh, New Zealand, which has been posted on all of our social media um, followings uh, before we got on air this week. So you can go there as well. And then the other one is available on uh, DVD, which follows Canada and the U.S. Second thing I want to lead off here is just by telling you my first exposure to wheelchair rugby. And it was back when we had an Ontario... Paris Sport Games when I was probably about 15 or 16 years old. Um, we were uh, at the event and we were sharing a uh, arena with wheelchair rugby. And it was two separate gymnasiums, but same building. And one of the things that occurred while we were there, it was a really hot summer day. It was late July, early August. And we kind of you know, past each other through the hallways and things like that. And one of the things that happened was they had a big ice bucket of um, water for the athletes. And I didn't really know what it was for. I wasn't really sure 
why it was there. And so we kind of stood around and, and watched for a bit. And we caught up with one of the players and I said to him, can I ask you what the ice bucket's for? And he, he says, he kind of chuckles and he says, watch what it's for. And I said, okay. And he literally dunked his entire head into the ice bucket. And I said, okay, pardon my ignorance, but is that just because you're hot or is there some further reason to this? And his answer was very intriguing to me in that he said, quadriplegics who play this game do not have the ability to sweat. So in order to cool their body down to the appropriate temperature after a game, they need to do this in a really, really hot arena in order to control their temperature. I thought that was really fascinating, guys, because I didn't notice, I didn't know that at all about uh, quadriplegics, that they don't sweat. And that's something that stood out in both of these documentaries. I'm just curious on your overall thoughts on these documentaries. Claire, we'll start with you. Yeah, you're exactly right. The Both uh, documentaries are quite similar and, and touch on similar similar ways of life and, and what they go through as both athletes and, and just someone living with a disability. And, um, I, I, when I was at the university of Alabama, I had a couple of teammates that also, uh, didn't sweat on their own and, and had to constantly be using a spray bottle during games to, to keep, uh, their body at a right at the right temperature and yeah it's 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 pretty neat uh the the ways that they try to keep their body at a cooler temperature especially in places like uh australia i can't i couldn't imagine um dealing with that kind of heat and and also not being able to sweat so um yeah both both documentaries touched on some pretty pretty tough stuff uh i i laughed a couple times because it it really shows how how uh, I guess lacking is the word I will use. Uh, the airline system is not just here in North America, but across the globe of um, just not people uh, people not understanding how how people with wheelchairs travel and um, yeah, there's a lot of issues on that as well. And it, it's really cool because both documentaries also kind of follow the teams uh, around the same time. They're both kind of leading into and then. Uh, actually at the games in, in 2004 in, in Athens. And it's it's really cool to see a, the perspective from not just one team, but uh, like the three top, three or four top teams uh, in the world at the time. And uh, yeah, it's really cool to see how they prepare and, and the rivalries. And that's my biggest thing that I took away is that I, I mean, as a hockey player, I, I love a good Canada-US rivalry. So to be able to watch a documentary on on the whole thing was really cool. And uh, yeah, I, I highly suggest anyone out there who hasn't seen it, go out and watch it and uh, actually try to go see a game uh, live once. Josh, you had a, a story about your first experience uh, of wheelchair rugby. Why don't you lead with that and then give your thoughts on the documentaries? Sure. So when I was a teenager, uh, there weren't a lot of opportunities where I grew up for sports for people with disabilities. The closest city was London, Ontario. And so we had the uh, the London Flyers uh, wheelchair basketball club. And then we had a couple of uh, 
couple of areas briefly that had sledge hockey, although they didn't seem to to last. London was the biggest team. But one day we we got contacted by someone and they said, you know, why don't you come out and and try this sport called wheelchair rugby? And I think it was probably early on in the sport. So I don't think they had the rules surrounding uh, limb function and such because um, I happen to be a paraplegic. I have spina bifida. And so I went out and I watched this the, these guys warm up in these these chairs that I can only describe as something out of Mad Max um, and watched them banging into each other, smashing into each other and just thought like, who in their right mind plays this? This is crazy. But I got out there and I tried it a little bit and it it was a fun sport. It's something I could potentially see myself doing. Until I saw the contact and yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm not one that likes to hit the floor. I've done it far too many times at far too many different angles and it just, it, it doesn't appeal to me at all, unfortunately. But in terms of the documentaries, uh, I had not seen the one on the, uh, the wheel blacks as they call themselves, the, the New Zealand team. But it was it was fascinating to see, and it did follow many of the same narratives that the uh, the murder ball documentary that we saw here in in Canada with Canada versus the United States uh, followed. Uh, again, it's it's fascinating to see how they prepare and indeed how they how they cool themselves off. Uh, I've seen that a little bit in athletics, only because you do get a number of different athlete classifications in athletics competing against one another. So you do see some, some lower functioning athletes who do have these challenges. And so you learn about, you know, towels that stay cool for excellent amount of hours. If you get them wet and, and just different, different things. But it, I think the thing that I enjoyed most, and I think, Claire brought this up as well as the rivalries and you saw the the Aussies versus the Kiwis which I'm sure is always a rivalry but really at the end of the day everybody wants to beat the Americans yeah I totally agree with you on that uh Cameron thoughts on the documentaries well, from here on out, I'm always going to call it Murder Ball because I just love that name. Um, and even though it's probably not good for the marketing purposes, I just think it's a phenomenal name because I think it's more apropos of what goes on. Um, my first experience um, with Murder Ball, uh, as I mentioned before, was at the Pan American Games in Toronto. And uh, my parents went, my aunt and uncle uh, from Rochester, New York, they came as well. And um, I remember... Um, my aunt and uncle, they were saying, um, you know, with all the hitting going on and people falling down, they're like, oh, uh, that's like, oh, my gosh. They were like horrified and like somebody's going to get hurt. And I was thinking in my mind, well, actually, they're already disabled and already hurt. So mm. how much more hurt can they actually be? Mm. Um, but that's how violent it gets with Murderball. And that's why it's such a good name. Um, as the documentaries 
Um, not necessarily the U.S.-Canada uh, one that is called Murder Ball because I have watched that before. Um, I more watched the uh, other video and I was actually really impressed because on the show we're always talking about classifications and um, based on their abilities on the floor. Um, but the documentary uh, that I watched, um, they were, I think it did a great roundup if you ever want to watch it because they did a, a great visual of what it is like to classify an athlete. And you actually get to see the athletes and, um, you know, how they have to push the wheelchair um, and how they have to use their arms in certain ways or if they're able to get up off the floor. Um, so it was a, just a great visual to really understand what we mean when we talk about uh, classifications and why there's only supposed to be, um, you know, a certain amount on the floor at one point in time. So that's kind of like the biggest takeaway that I um, took um, as well. And I think it was the Aussies and the Kiwis. Um, I could be wrong, but one of the teams, they did like what's called, I believe, a haku dance. And that was phenomenal to see as well. Um, and I think it was just before the game. So, yeah, just kind of a couple of things um, when it comes to that. Um, as well, just how they train and how serious they take it. Um, when I was watching it, whether you're watching like an Olympic team or a Paralympic team, it's just all about um, – you know, getting ready to go and training. And whether you're an Olympic athlete or Paralympic athlete, you're training to get to the highest level that you can. So um, that's something else that I took away from it as well. Um, two things for me that I want to highlight from uh, these documentaries is I loved the transparency of these documentaries in the pulling back of the curtain in saying, yep, we're, do we're doing a documentary on rugby, uh, but here's a little glimpse of our, of our personal life and what it takes for us to get up in the morning. And some people use, you know, catheter bags or things like that. They really did pull back the curtain and allow the audience beyond the classification to really understand the level at which us athletes have to go through to get up and get ready. I mean, for all of us, it looks like when people come and watch, it's like, oh, they're ready and they, they, they're doing their thing. But there's so much that you don't see behind the scenes that I really related to uh, for myself and my career. Because my day started usually about three hours, three and a half hours before um, my match um, started. And that includes the time of getting into the the does not include the time of getting into the call room so all told it's probably uh, closer to four hours uh, for most of us the other thing that i thought was interesting on the documentary that followed new zealand was they mentioned that the wheelchairs one cost between five and ten thousand dollars which is a lot of money for a wheelchair and the second piece to that is that these chairs only last about two years time because of the beating that they take on a game to game basis, tournament to tournament. Guys, did you feel that there was anything missing from the documentary? Start with you, Cameron, then Josh, then Claire. 
No, I think uh, between the two documentaries, they did a phenomenal job um, talking about it and showing their journey uh, up to the Paralympics. So, and I, I wish that, uh, you know, more sports did that, especially on the Paralympic level. Yeah, I really enjoyed both documentaries. I have my own copy of Murder Ball that I uh, picked up when it came out because I I was fascinated by it. Um, I thought it did a really great job of highlighting the athleticism and the athletes and the sport. But as you said, Brock, also the the daily life, because for for each of us, our days look entirely different. And for some, it's roll out of bed, get in your chair and off you go. And for others, it's it's much more of a process and you have to factor that in. And they talk about, you know, sure, the guys like to go out and hit the town, but they also know that they are athletes and they have to manage their their level of fatigue and their their preparedness and and all of those things. So it was it was very eye opening in both uh, instances and in, in my opinion and I do remember Cameron that scene that you're talking about I think it was uh, the New Zealanders and the South Africans uh, that that had that uh, display and it is an amazing thing to watch if you ever get a chance in terms of of that uh, haka or or whatever the proper term for it is yeah it's definitely a sport that uh, more people need to to watch I I honestly don't think that this documentary is missing anything per se. I think it touched on things that usually don't get spoken about. Um, Like you guys said, like, like we all said, it it pulled back the curtain of, of just daily lives with the, with living with a disability. And um, it also touched on, on topics of, of being in relationships and, and having uh, a sex life and uh, other stuff that when people think of, of not just disabled athletes, but just the disabled community in general, that, that that stuff just doesn't happen for us. And it's, it's nice to have documentaries out there like this, that, that have been exposed to the general public to show that, yeah, we do experience the same things that an able-bodied person does uh, on a day-to-day basis and just in our own personal lives. Uh, the other thing that I really enjoyed is um, whenever someone watches a parasport for the first time, there's like that light bulb moment or or that moment of like, holy smokes, this is really cool. And uh, it, it, it was really nice to see those moments of when the athletes went around to uh, the rehab centers and stuff. And uh, and newly injured uh, individuals got to have that moment of they still are able to to do things and and have goals and and have sports in their life if if that's what they want to do and um, yeah it's it's I thought they touched on stuff that uh, most documentaries don't usually uh, touch on when it comes to the disabled community. Yeah, the um, the thing you said about people having. Um you know, getting, getting to like this sport and, and liking it, they have to get past the, oh my God, someone's going to get hurt situation first before they really see the beautiful thing about parasports in general. And so that is our debrief of these documentaries. Again, if you want the uh, free version, which follows the uh, New Zealand team, just type in Murderball on 
YouTube and you pull it up there. And if you want the Canada US, you can go get a copy of that at, at, at basically anywhere where you can get videos and you should be able to find that as well. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we're going to switch gears to the mainstream sports world. We're going to start off with a few things from the uh, the Olympic Games. And also there's a baseball team which is changing their name. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Neutral Zone right here on AMI-audio. I'm your host, Brock Richardson, joined by Cameron Jenkins and Claire Buchanan. Of course, we thank Josh Watson for stepping in for a segment and dissecting Murderball. We really had a great time with that segment. We've got a couple of clips that we want to uh, cover. Let's start with one of Major League Baseball's most historic teams is changing their name finally no clip on that um the the cleveland indians are changing their name uh claire you kind of brought this to our attention um earlier today and this is a good thing isn't it oh absolutely i mean we've seen it happen in the nfl recently as well and it's it's just those small changes that are are big in a way as well that that need to happen so that uh, we we are respecting uh, everybody in 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 our communities properly. All right, before we get to Cameron, let's go to the clip. When Major League Baseball play began in Cleveland in 1901, the team was known as the Bluebirds. The franchise has changed its name several times since, but this is our team that has stood with our city for more than a century, from Old Municipal to the corner of Carnegie. It's actor Tom Hanks in a video announcing the team's new name, the Cleveland Guardians. The club says it made the choice after more than 40,000 fans were surveyed, and the name recognizes the Guardians of Traffic sculptures on the Hope Memorial Bridge. The team's color scheme will be the same. Brian Clark, ABC News. Uh, thoughts, Cameron, on the uh, Guardians as the name. It reminds me of the uh, Brampton Guardian where I used to grow up. Uh, do you like the name? Um, Brampton Guardian or the Cleveland Guardians? The, 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 Cle- <laughs> the Cleveland Guardians. It reminds me of the Brampton Guardian. That's why I, I'm having a little trouble with this name right now, but I'll get used yeah, to it. Yeah, fair enough. And, and I do live in Brampton, so I know exactly of that local newspaper. Um, you know what? That's fine. It's good that I guess that it's not the Indians anymore because uh, you want to, you know, be empathetic uh, to um, the Native community. So it's about time, I think, that they did this. Um, you know, at the end of the day, if they're going to have a cool logo, which I'm not sure about the baseball with the two uh, wings on the side, if that's going to be, uh, you know, the cool logo moving forward. But at the end of the day, money talks. And if you have a good logo, it's going to, you know, sell out a lot of uh, jerseys. So, um, you know, I, I'm neither here nor there with the uh, new name. 
Yeah, I, I'm. I have to warm up to it. I also had to warm up to the Seattle Kraken. I thought that that was an odd name. It's growing on me now, um, and I'm sure this one will as well. I just associate the Guardian with something else. You know, I, I, I don't. I don't associate it with a baseball team. But I guess sooner rather than later, I'm going to have to do that. And it was the right change to make if you are the Cleveland baseball club uh the olympic ceremony went ahead this morning with no spectators but spectators did appear at government headquarters in tokyo let's take a listen to this clip a few dozen locals were there venting their disapproval chanting no to the olympics and save people's lives among those there, Tokyo resident Masa Yamagata. It's unethical, and uh, we can't enjoy it anyway. You know, we can't celebrate it. No mood for celebration. We're not happy. We're very unhappy having our Olympics here in this, this city. <laughs> Tokyo recorded nearly 2,000 new COVID cases over the past 24 hours, a new six-month high. Tom Rivers, ABC News at the Foreign Desk. Yeah, I, I can't say that I'm surprised by this by uh, protesters uh, going to government headquarters uh thoughts claire from you what did you think when you heard that clip yeah i mean you can hear how uh upset and uh scared the community is it's it's we've been making measures to make it as safe as possible but hearing that they've hit kind of a record in the last six months with cases is, is unsettling as well. And um, I'm just hoping that these games push through uh, with minimal effect on, on the community and, and get done as safely as possible. Because uh, I mean, at the end of the day, they, they made the decision to keep them running and, and not postpone them anymore. So um, yeah, I definitely empathize with the the, uh, the Tokyo community. Yeah, uh, and I think the clip, it said that there was a couple of dozen people there. So um, even though it was a protest, it seems like a lot of people, uh, you know, weren't there or as, you know, as much as it could have been. Um, as Claire said, I just hope that they're able to um, hold the games without uh, – too many COVID cases, uh, both uh, for the athletes and for the community at large. Um, and at the end of the day, it's just all about the mighty dollar. And that's why they're holding the games, because it would have cost the um, IOC too much money to cancel it. So um, it's, it's just really unfortunate that once again, the almighty dollar uh, seems to win out compared to people's health. And that's what, you know, really upsets me. And that's what spawned uh, this week's Twitter poll question was, you know, with the would you be watching the Olympic Games? So I posed the question to the both of you. Are you going to be watching the Olympic Games? Yes or no, Claire? Yeah, I mean, I, I am going to catch the games to uh, to support, support Team Canada, of course. And um, I, I think at the end of the day, that's that's all we can do right now so, is support and uh hope for the best at the end of the day for for not just the athletes but uh again the community involved and uh yeah it's hopefully hopefully it runs smoothly yeah i just fear still that the narrative 
of this games is going to be um, is going to be largely dominated by how many COVID cases there are versus what the athletes are actually uh, accomplishing on the field because of just the big black dark cloud. Cameron, are you going to be taking in the games? Um, I don't know, to be quite honest with you, how much I'll be watching it. Um, yes, I'm always cheering for Team Canada. Um, with the way social media is today, um, you know, you, you're going to see it on uh, Twitter or Facebook or whatever the case is. Um, so I don't think I'll be watching it quite as much as other people will be. But, yeah, I'm going to glance uh, through the highlights to see who uh, won and yeah, I'm always uh, wanting to support Team Canada. Let's uh, discuss more broadly to uh, close the show how uh, the Seattle Kraken did in their first ever uh, expansion and the draft. Cameron, start with you and then Claire. Well, it was certainly an intriguing draft for the Kraken. They had a lot of uh, big names uh, that they could have gone after. Um, there was a couple of Duchesne from Nashville. Um, I think that they had a, a few other ones as well. Um, I think one of them we're going to be talking a, in a couple of minutes about. Um, and it looks like that um, the Kraken, they really went, um, they, they were very fiscally responsible for who they took because they wanted to make sure that they had a lot of cap room um, ready for free agency as well. So they're certainly taking a different path than what Las Vegas did. Um, and I think that you're not going to necessarily see them uh, you know, in, in the next few years, do what Las Vegas did and get to the playoffs and almost get to the Stanley Cup final. I think they're going to take a much more uh, modest approach and uh, build from the draft and uh, go from there. Yeah, I agree with you, Cameron. Uh, right now, the Kraken have twenty nine million in in cap space, and uh, the they only have two players over the age of thirty as well. So they are definitely making the moves to uh, have longevity. And um, yeah, the Las Vegas Golden Knights they they definitely uh, cashed in uh, pretty deep uh, when they first had their first season and uh, they went really deep into the playoffs as we saw. And so it did work out for them, but uh, they, the Kraken are definitely taking a different approach of, like you said, laying that foundation uh, with young skilled players to, to have that success uh, build up in the next few years. Yeah. I, um, I, I just don't think they are at the same level as Vegas was. I think they took a, a full different approach in that altogether. I just believe that this is their approach, and I believe that they're going to build the way a franchise team should build and not expedite the process. That is the end of our show for this week. I'd like to thank Claire Buchanan, Cam Jenkins. I'd also like to thank our technical producers, Matt Agnew and Akil Chin Sang. I'd also like to thank our technical supervisor, Paula Deneen, and our manager of AMI Audio is Andy Frank. And I, of course, am your host and producer, Brock Richardson. Tune in next week because you just never know what happens when you enter the neutral zone. We'll talk to you next week.
This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.